0: that are waiting for me. Yeah. Hello, everybody. Welcome to California Haunts Radio. As you can tell, tonight I am not running an intro. And there's a reason why. Because it's a special night. Tonight, we don't have a guest. The guest um, had to cancel yesterday because he is a professional musician. He's in a jazz quartet. And he was doing an outdoor concert and he got rained out. So there, he's doing his concert tonight. So he'll be with us next next Thursday. Okay? A week from tomorrow. Next Thursday. So I was kind of wrestling with the idea of what I could do tonight. You know, whether I would sit here and you could ask, you know, do the question and answer thing. I could talk ghost stories. You know, whatever. And then I thought, you know what? Every Sunday, for those of you that aren't regular listeners on the Sunday show, every Sunday look at that my ass is say I should have put that thing up but it's kind of nice to do without it every Sunday I read from a paranormal theme book and we get we get a pretty good audience you know people like to do it they're wanting down their weekends and all that this last Sunday of course being um the holiday weekend I didn't get a chance to do that so I got to thinking about otherwise you know I was gonna make it up on Saturday which would have given me a what is it? A full seven day work week with or not get a break at all from shows. I would have gone straight through to uh, two weeks worth the shows. And I thought, I don't know if I want to do that. But I was, uh, you know, I was debating it. But since the cancellation came, I thought, you know what? I want to do this. I'm just going to read it on Wednesday. So tonight's a unique show. And for people that haven't heard me read before, it's going to be kind of fun. I mean, you can sit at your house, you know, if if you're back east somewhere and you're freezing or in some country somewhere and you're freezing, light the fire, go grab some hot cocoa, put your feet up, you know, get into bed, do whatever. Uh, if you're walking around your house, put, put, put your fuzzies on your feet, that kind of thing. And just sit back and enjoy, you know, dim those lights. And I'm going to read from this book on, about Lizzie Borden. And it's an involved book. It goes through her trial. It goes through the witness statements. And then it even takes it over to the the actual bed and breakfast that exists now. And then it talks about the haunting in the bed and breakfast. And from what I understand, the house she moved into after she moved out of the murder house was also haunted. So I think that's in this book, too. Rebecca Pittman is a great writer. She's been on the show two or three times with with her books. And that's how we got permission to do this is she she self-publishes. So this is uh, read with her permission. And I'm just doing this to kill some time because people are used to me doing, you know, used to that five minute intro. So I want to give people time to get over, to, to get on here. But uh, she graciously allowed me to read her book. So that's what we're reading. And we're about I think we're about halfway through this book. I don't even know what chapter we're in, you know. But I, I, what I do is, you know, the process is I, I read for an hour and then I stop. Or I read it until I hit the, hit the, you know, the chapter mark and then I stop, or or a paragraph mark where you know where there's a heading where I can go back in on my, on my tablet to make sure I know where we're at. So far we've read the Ghost of Flight 401 in the sessions. We've read uh, a book by Anna Maria Manalo, which was really good about a ghost story, about about uh, Nazi Germany. It was really a good book. My brain fart hitting me again. And we have also read, oh, yes, and we read uh, Mrs. Miracle for Christmas, right? That was part of our Christmas. And we also read, we also read, I and, and, and all of us as a group, I say collective We also heard um, the Mojave incident, which I had permission to do about the UFO uh, abduction of a husband and wife that continued afterwards. At their home, so we read that one, and now we're reading Lizzie Borden, right? And, you know, you've seen the Lizzie Borden movie with the with Elizabeth Montgomery, right? Right? Well, uh, that that one was kind of a stretcher. I don't think I've seen the new one yet. The one with um, Christina Ricci? 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 How say her name? I know somebody's out there yelling at me, going, "You're not saying it right. I'm bad with names." But yeah, I haven't seen that new one. But uh, I'm eager to see it. So maybe tonight, maybe maybe I can find it on Amazon or Hulu or something. But so we're gonna be reading from this book tonight and uh, give everybody a quick synopsis update. She has done the deed, and the book turned the book turned dark on me, you know, because I didn't expect Rebecca to go into Lizzie's head, and so she actually went into Lizzie's head. So you can you you could actually you know experience what lizzie was thinking when she was trying to figure out ways to kill her her father and stepmother it turned really dark Ooh. even for me i i like these kind of books okay i'm a big stephen king person but um it turned really dark so now we're at the point where they're dead and the investigation has started at the house in, in fall river and Lizzie's there at the house and the police are in and out of there, you know, doing their thing. And and the neighbors are, are gawking and all this is going on. And and then, yeah. And then so what it'll do, it'll cut back to the house to give you an idea. I might get lost when I'm reading it. I've been doing that because what it does is but uh, the, the way it's designed in the book, the uh, the e the ebook in the, the Kindle, Kindle book is that the captions are written really large. So it looks like text. So sometimes I'll start reading the caption and realize it's not the text. So then I'll stop and continue. Or um, it'll switch back and forth between what's going on at the house and the testimony taken from the people that, you know, investigated or knew Lizzie or whatever. So sometimes it gets kind of jumbled. So I might have to stop and and readjust or go back a page or something because somewhere along the line I started reading something that shouldn't have been there or I shouldn't have read Makes sense, right? Because it's like, it's like jumbled. So I'm just giving you a heads up. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state of California. If you have a paranormal need, we can get to you in almost any location that you are at. Because of that being 45 strong, we have people in almost every county of the state. I'm saying almost, okay, because I know there's a lot of counties in the state. But we can help you out. Want to get a hold of me? Get me a hold of me at Californiahaunts.org, CaliforniahauntsRadio.com, which is down right now for maintenance. Find me on Facebook. I have a public thing on Facebook, you know, public profile. There's two California Haunts pages on Facebook. And you can find us at California Haunts Ghost Events as well. So if you think you have a paranormal need, hit me up. We'll get out there. And it's an extenuous procedure. We're not just going to go out there and tell you you have a ghost, just to say you have a ghost. We don't do that. That's not the right way to do things. The right way to do things is to go out and be investigators. I have a 100-question questionnaire, and I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about what's going on. Even about your family, I'm going to ask you personal questions. But it's all in good it's, it's all in good nature because I'm trying to figure out and pound down to find out what might be going on. Who knows? Maybe you uh, had a switch of medications or something, you know, or or SMUD put in one of their, you know, meters. One of those crazy meters that causes hallucinations. High EMF, lots of high, you know, lots of high emit of of EMF, make you paranoid, you know, make you see things and all that and give you headaches and make you not feel good and all that good stuff. That's what we do. We check all that stuff out. Then when we have no other explanation, then we look at paranormal. But we're going to look at the wiring in your house. We're going to look at all that stuff. So you're getting the full package with California Haas, all right, when we come out to the house. Anyhow the read tonight, like I said, kick off your shoes, turn down the lights, if you're in your 90, put, put your fuzzies on your feet, get your ottoman, prop your feet up, jump into bed, because we're going to read a book for an hour, maybe a little longer, depending on where we end up towards the end of the day, but uh, we are going to read today, and uh, it's about Lizzie Borden, everybody knows about Lizzie Borden, right? Remember the old thing, gave her, what was it? Gave her mother 40 wax. Then when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Right? Remember that growing up? Well, that's who we're reading about. Oh Lizzie. Old Lizzie. And the question is going to be at the end of all this, we're going to have a little, we're going to have a quiz. I'm kidding. But it, it, <laughs> when the book's done, we're going to have a, just a, a, a round table discussion because I, I want to know what you guys think. And if you think that she actually did it or it was all circumstantial evidence that she didn't do it. Right? That's what we got to find out. Okay? And I'm going to be in contact with the lady that did the, the uh, portraits of the dead that was on here what this last month, a couple of weeks ago, right? I guess last month. And she has offered to do a contest for you guys because you know to help us earn some donations. And we're, I'm trying to pound out how much it's going to be, but usually her portraits run anywhere from 175 to 200. And she's willing to sell raffle tickets for these things all expenses going to California Haunts is she will do a portrait for somebody for the winner of a dead relative. Pretty cool. So I'm working out the details on that. So I'm really excited about that. Really excited about that. Now, if you're watching from Facebook, or um, hit that follow button and let me know how you feel. If you like the show, I don't want negatives. Sorry. I like to be a happy person. So if you like the show, hit those hearts. Hit those thumbs up. Same thing with Twitch. Hit the follow button. We're looking for followers. If you're on YouTube listening, of course, we want you to subscribe. So please hit the subscribe button. We've got more than 250 videos sitting over there. And I think there's a little bit of something for everybody. See, like today, we're reading. Other days, we might be talking about uh, ch- child abuse or murders or something else. But we're always doing something different here. Always try to mix it up. But like I said, today is is uh, an interesting day midweek because, the, excuse me, because the guest did uh, reschedule for next Thursday due to rain. You know, because um, it's, like, it's like he rescheduled for Thursday, I rescheduled my reading for today. Blah blah blah. And uh, for the people that are just coming in, I'll explain why. Because he's a co- he, he is a um, jazz musician, and he's in a quartet, and they were supposed to do an outdoor concert last night. And it rained and they got rained out. So they're doing the concert tonight and then he'll be back. He'll, he'll be on next Thursday. So over the weekend, I didn't get a chance really to do the show, to do to, to this. We always read from a book, paranormal theme book every Sunday. And I kind of set it up and then ran out of time. And then when I got home, I was tired and I was debating. By then it was like 10 o'clock California time. And I was like, I don't know if I should do that because no one's going to be up and. Well, so I decided not to. So I was going to actually do this on Saturday. But since he had to reschedule, I thought, you know what? I could take Saturday off. Because otherwise I'd have to go like a week and a half to two weeks straight doing shows. Which I have done, but it can get grueling. So I decided to um, do it tonight. So that's what we're here for. So we'll give everybody a couple more minutes. And we're going to rock and roll into this. And uh, again, uh, we're at a point in the book where Lizzie has done the deed. In fact, I get to, it's it's like casual Fridays today, so I get to drink water as I go. I get to drink some water. Imported, no, walgreens. Thank you, Pamela. Pamela's in the chat room. Maurice is in the chat room. Woohoo! Hit those like buttons, folks. So, okay, I'm going to open the book up. And uh, I always do this every Sunday. Who knows? Maybe I'll get lucky. I have an old tablet. It is so old, it creaks. I got a like already. Thank you. (laughs) Keep those likes, keep those cards and letters and likes coming. And follow, follow, follow. Okay? So, if (laughs) anybody. I could use an iPad, you know, or a new Android. I'd like the 10-inch, I'd like to get the 12-inch Android. So let me get this powered up. I, my old even a 10-inch Android going from my 8-inch to a 10-inch would be good, would be really cool. Samsung Galaxy Note 8.0. I have I've maxed out all the memory on this poor thing. I can't even it's so old I can't even update it anymore. So it's got jelly bean from like two years ago on it. So we'll get started, and like I said, we're at the point now uh, with Lizzie that she's already done the dastardly deed, and now she's kind of hanging out in the house as as, ever, as the police and everybody are investigating. So it's going to flip, like I said, it's going to flip back and forth, and like I, I, I said earlier, I'm going to warn you guys ahead of time because written in this format, and because I have to enlarge it because I'm blind, the uh, captions tend to be as big as the regular type. So sometimes I have to stop and go back over stuff because I'll start reading the captions in the middle of what I'm reading and you know, that kind of thing, or I'm reading the wrong thing. Okay. So I have no clue what chapter we're in at this point because I stopped mid chapter. Okay. Let's see. All right. So I think this is where I left off. Okay. So Assistant Marshal John Fleet arrived at the Borden home between ten and fifteen minutes to twelve. Officer Gillian, let me know oh, the time here. Okay. Officer Gillian had been stationed at the front door to keep the onslaught of curious onlookers at bay. Fleet inched his way through the crowds. His civilian clothing doing nothing in the way of granting him the authority he needed to hurry his arrival. As he finally entered in through the north gate, he saw Officer Medley in the side yard. The two stopped to talk for a few minutes. It may have been at that time Medley informed the assistant marshal of his talk with Lizzie Borton, her statement that she had been up in the barn loft and that he had just returned from looking at that area and found no footprints in the layer of the hay dust there. As John Fleet approached Charles Sawyer at the steps, he saw reporter John Manning of the Fall River Herald interviewing anyone who would, watch, who would talk to him. Edwin Porter with the Fall River Globe was at the front door also gathering notes for his newspaper column. The two journalists had already been all through the house, along with the others. The public was regaled with the gruesome details before the end of the day. Assistant Marshal John Fleet entered the Borden house. He found John Morris, Bridget Sullivan, and Mrs. Churchill in the kitchen. Adelaide Churchill left the house to go home moments later. Alice Russell was now upstairs with Lizzie in her bedroom. As Fleet passed through the sitting room, he saw Dr. Dolan leaning over the body of Andrew Borden. He stopped long enough to look at Mr. Borden's wounds and asked where the second body was. He was told upstairs in the spare room. Fleet found Abby Borden dead between the bureau and the bed. He noticed her head was all broken in. He came from the room and turned right where he found a locked door. Dr. Bowen was standing there and Marshal Fleet asked if any of the family was around so that he could have the door unlocked. Dr. Bowen directed Fleet to the only other door in that on that landing, the one to the left of the guest chamber. Lizzie Borden's bedroom. Marshall Fleet tapped on the partially open door and found Lizzie seated on her lounge against the wall with with the windows. Next to her sat Reverend Buck, her friend from Central Congregational Church. From that day forward, Reverend Buck was to be seen constantly by Lizzie's side, a position the newspapers found to be cloying and attention seeking. Alice Russell was seated near Lizzie's desk where she had been earlier. During the Superior Court trial in June of 1893, Marshal Fleet gave the following testimony. I went in there and told her who I was, made known who I was, parentheses. I was in citizen's clothes as I am now, parentheses end. and I asked her if she knew anything about the murders. She said that she did not. All she knew was that Mr. Borden, her father, as she put it, came home about half past ten or quarter to eleven went into the sitting room, sat down in the large chair, took out some papers, and looked at them. She was ironing in the dining room some handkerchiefs, as she stated. She saw her father was feeble, and she went to him and advised and assisted him to lay down on the sofa. She then went into the dining room to do her ironing, but left, after her father was laid down and went out in the yard and up in the barn. I asked her how long she remained in the barn. She said she remained up in the barn about half an hour. I then asked her what she meant by up in the barn. She said, I mean, up in the barn, upstairs, sir. (Parentheses) notice. Lizzie says her father took out some papers and looked at them. If it had been a newspaper, she would have said the paper. She let it slip that she noticed he was looking at something other than the Providence Journal. A slip-up no one caught. Fleet continued. She said, after she had been up there in the barn loft, About half an hour, she came down again, went into the house, and found her father on the lounge in the position in which she had left him, but killed or dead. I then asked her what she did, finding him in that condition, and she said that she went to the back stairs and called Maggie. And I asked her who Maggie was. She said Maggie was the servant girl, because there parentheses, she's talking about Bridget. She told Maggie to go for Dr. Bowen. He was not in, the house, in his house. She then told her to go for Miss Russell, and Miss Russell came, and so did Dr. Bowen soon after. At least that's what she stated. I asked her, who was in the house this morning or last night? She said that no one but her father, Mrs. Borden, and Bridget, and Mr. Morris, and herself. I asked her, who is this Mr. Morris? She said, he is my uncle, and he came here yesterday and slept in the room where Mrs. Borden was found dead. She said she didn't think Mr. Morris had anything to do with the killings because Mr. Morris left the house this morning before 9 o'clock and did not return until after the murders. I asked her if she thought Bridget, parentheses Maggie, could have done this, and she said she didn't think that she could or did because Maggie went upstairs previous to her father's lying down in the lounge, and when she came back from the barn, she called Maggie downstairs. I then asked her if she had any idea who could have killed her father and mother. She said. She is not my mother, sir. She is my stepmother. My mother died when I was a child. How Alice Russell and Reverend Buck reacted to Lizzie's outburst concerning Abby would be interesting. The woman lay on the other side of the guest chamber door, only a few feet away butchered and lying in a pool of blood. Lizzie's denouncement of her at such a time was cold and unfeeling. While Alice later testified the feelings between the sisters and their stepmother was not congenial, This showing of hatred for the dead woman may have surprised her greatly. Marshal Fleet continued his testimony. I then asked her if there had been anyone around this morning whom she would suspect of having done the killing of these people, and she said she had not seen anyone. But at nine o'clock that morning, a man came to the door and was talking with her father. In parentheses, the person at the door was young William Morris. Oh, I'm sorry. The person at the door was young William Morris, delivering Abby's fake. Sick call note. End. I asked her what they were talking about, and she said she thought they were talking about a store, and he spoke like an Englishman. Parentheses, parentheses, Jonathan Clegg, who had just rented Andrew Borden's store on South Main the day before the murders, had an English accent. He came to see Andrew, Andrew Borden at home both on Tuesday and Wednesday before the murders on Thursday. Lizzie is building a patchwork quilt of lies based on various visits to the Borden home that week. Another tenant dropped off keys to a store a few days before. It might be noticed that Lizzie doesn't seem to miss much concerning people coming to the house, including the man in the baseball shoes on Monday. (In of parentheses. As Lizzie paused, Alice Russell suddenly spoke from her chair by the door. Tell him all. Tell him what you was telling me, Alex coaxed, referring to Lizzie's tales of terror the night before in Alice's parlor. Lizzie looked at Miss Russell, with that indefinable gaze that people around her committed upon, in parentheses. <laughs> Thank you. About two weeks ago, a man came to the house, to the front door, and had some talk with Father, and talked as though he was angry. And I asked her what he was talking about. She said he was talking about a store, and Father said to him, I cannot let you have the store for that purpose. The man seemed to be angry. I then came downstairs. This was probably the conversation Lizzie eavesdropped on Tuesday and Wednesday, when Jonathan Clegg came to talk to Andrew about hiring the sto- hiring the store. The polite exchange between her father and the businessman, who was only a day who was only a day later already remodeling Andrew's store, Clegg was moving into, has now become a bitter argument between an Englishman demanding a store, and a reluctant Andrew Borden. Marshall Fleet made notes of the conversation. So far, Lizzie has made no mention of looking for sinkers in the barn loft. Her alibi she gave at the coroner's inquest days later for why she was up in the stifling hot loft during the criminal time her father was being hacked to death. She has only told Ellis Russell that she was looking for iron or tin to fix her window. Mrs. Churchill and Dr. Bowen were simply told she was looking for iron, and Bridget was informed by Lizzie that she was in the yard when Andrew was murdered. At 11.45 that morning, Lizzie's dear friend, Marianne Holmes, received the shocking news of the grisly deaths of the Bordens. She made arrangements to hurry to Lizzie's side. During Lizzie's inquisitions and the comings and goings of doctors, police officials, reporters, and friends, Andrew Borden's lifeless body was gone over. Not only his wounds and the condition of his blood were noted, Dr. Bowen and Officer Wixon went through his pockets and documented Andrew's personal property. A large ring of keys, a large shop key possibly belonging to the broken Yale lock he brought home with him, a can of fine chewing tobacco, a pocketbook with $81.65 in paper and coin, a letter, a silver watch and black braid, and a memorandum book. The memorandum book was a small notebook often carried by businessmen to make notations of transactions, receipts, etc. Dr. Dolan, who made an accounting of Andrew's effects, found something in the notebook. He found interesting enough to give it to Attorney Knowlton, the prosecuting attorney, on September 2, 1892, enclosed in a brief letter. Honorable H.M. Knowlton Dear Sir, I'm looking over the old memorandum book of A.J. Borden. I found the enclosed slip. Please return to me if you have no desire to retain it. Respectfully, W.A. Dolan. Mr. Knowlton's return of the slip carried with it a cryptic reply. It said simply, keep it safe. Was the paper possibly a receipt? Had Andrew kept the sales receipt for the clawhead hatchet he was forced to purchase when Lizzie stole his others? Would this small slip of paper join his other nonverbal remonstrations, like the sitting room key to his locked bedroom? and the beheaded pigeons? Was he saving it for some future gesture, or was it to be his proof that he had purchased such a hatchet for his home in case it too went missing? Would the police be called in for any more of Lizzie's shenanigans? Dr. Bowen made several trips up the stairs to check on Lizzie. It may have been during one of those trips that he carried to her a letter he found in Andrew's pocket. As there is no report that Andrew ever went to the post office that morning, And Lizzie admitted during her inquest testimony that he told her he may not have time that forenoon. We have only her word that he did go. Bridget heard Lizzie ask her father upon his return that morning, any mail for me? Bridget did not hear Andrew's reply. Only Lizzie claimed he replied, none for you. It was important to her that it be believed Andrew did stop at the post office, mail her letter to Emma, and return with a providence journal and a white wrapper tucked under his arm. If a roll of burned papers was found in the stove, it would simply be the newspaper that she finished as she sat in the kitchen waiting for her irons to get hot. If Doctor Bowen found Lizzie's unmailed letter to someone in Andrew's pocket, it would be natural to take it to her. The other letter found among his personal property was returned to Lizzie at the trial. The letter Lizzie gave her father to mail was to Emma. It was never mailed, but when asked about it during excuse me, it him, when asked about it during her inquest testimony. Lizzie is ready with an answer. Lizzie stated the letter was mailed and was later returned to the house as Emma, after receiving Dr. Bowen's telegram, had hurried home and missed the post in Fairhaven. We do know Dr. Bowen is seen shortly after being in Lizzie's room, standing in the kitchen near the stove with a torn letter in his hands. By 1225, not long after Marshall Fleet departed, Lizzie's room, another policeman arrived at her bedroom door. Officer Phil Harrington. Other officers are arriving quickly. Officers Divine, Cogswell, and Riley. Of all the officers questioned during the days and months of the murders, Phil Harrington's testimonies were the most articulate and detailed. It was not just his keen eye for women's fashion that stood out. There was not much that escaped this man's intention. Officer Philip Harrington. I stepped into the hall after coming from viewing Abby in the guest room. Turned toward to go to the the head of the stairs, and as I did so, the door on the east and the hallway was ajar. In that room, I saw Miss Russell and Miss Borden. Officer Harrington testified that when he arrived a few minutes earlier, he saw several women in the kitchen. As Alice was upstairs with Lizzie and may mean Mrs. Holmes had arrived, and is there with and is there with Bridget. Mrs. Churchill has gone home, and Phoebe Bowen sent away earlier. Any other females on the premises have not been mentioned. I stepped into the room, and, taking the door in my right hand, I passed it back. Miss Russell stood on my left, and she received the door and closed it. Miss Russell stood in front of a chair, which was on the north side of the door, which I entered. Miss Lizzie Borden stood at the foot of the bed, which ran diagonally across the room. That is, the head of the bed was up in the northeast corner, forming a triangle with the north north and east sides of the wall. I don't want to go. She stood at the foot of the bed on the north side. I asked her to tell me all about this matter. She said I can tell you nothing about it. I asked her when she last saw her father and she said when he returned from the post office with a small package in his hand and some mail. I asked him I asked, yeah, I asked him if he had any for me and he said no. He then sat down to read the paper and I went into the barn. I remained there for about 20 minutes. I returned and found him dead. I then asked her, when going to or coming from the barn, did you see anybody in or around the yard or anybody going up or down the street? She said, no, sir. Well, in the barn, did you hear any noise in or about the yard as if anybody was walking there? She said, no, sir. I said, not even the opening or closing of the door? Why not? You were but a short distance and you would have heard the noise if any was made. The scraping sound is now missing. She said, I was up in the loft. I then asked her, what motive? And she said, I don't know. Was it robbery? I think not. For everything appears all right, even to the watch in his pocket and the ring on his finger, she said. The rest of the house was all right, too. I then asked her if she had any reason to suspect anybody. After hesitating, Lizzie retells the story of the angry stranger coming to the house, not twice now, but three times in the past three weeks. So far, she has been careful to keep the harrowing events happening at her home within the two-week absence of her sister. This is the first time she had to visit with angry words three weeks prior to the murders. A few weeks ago, as he stated, Father had angry words with the man about something. They were very angry at the time, and the stranger went away. They were in another room, but from the tone of their voices, I knew everything was not pleasant between them. About two weeks ago, he came again they had a very animated conversation during which they got angry again. And I heard father say, no, sir, I will not let my store for any such business. But before they separated, I heard father say, when you are in town, come again. And I will let you know about it. The last words Lizzie quotes hearing the stranger say are quite possibly the only fabric of truth. Andrew may have told James Chatterton on Monday to come again when you are in town. And I will let you know about it. James was from out of town. He lived in Lynn, Massachusetts. Andrew would then talk to him later about, about running the Swansea farm. It is interesting to note Officer Harrington's note and the witness statements he submitted to Marshal Hillier later. It reads, although Lizzie did not see the man who called about the store, still, she did not explain how she knew it was he who called the second time. Lizzie also testified later at the inquest that it was dark when the man called, and she did not see his features. What Lizzie did not realize is that the officers were constantly comparing notes that day. Her discrepancies in her stories to different policemen were being monitored in a play-by-play account. Thus, when another officer entered her room to question her, he had in mind what story she had already told. Officer Harrington, noting a few embellishments and omissions, said to her, Owing to the, atro- the atrociousness of the crime, perhaps you are not in a mental condition to give us clear a clear statement of the facts as you will be done tomorrow. By that time, you you may recollect more about the man who wished to hire the store. You may remember of having seen him and thereby being able to give a description of him. You may recollect of having heard your father say something about him or his visit. So by that time, you may be in a better condition to relate what you know the circumstances. To this, she made a stiff curtsy, shaking her head as she says, No, I can tell you all I know now, just as well as at any other time. I asked her again about her time that she was in the barn. She said 20 minutes. I asked her, wasn't it difficult to be so accurate about fixing the time? Said I, may you not have been there a half hour or perhaps only 15 minutes? She says, no, sir. I was there 20 minutes. She just told she had just told Assistant Marshal Fleet she'd been in there 30 minutes. Miss Russell looked very pale, Officer Harrington noted in his witness statement report. She was pale and much agitated, which she showed by short, short, shallow breathing and wringing her hands. She spoke not a word. Lizzie stood at the front of the bed and talked in the most calm and collected manner. Her whole bearing was more, most remarkable under the circumstances. There was not the least indication of agitation, no sign of sorrow or grief, no, la- no, no lamentation of the heart, no comment on the horror of crime, and no expression of a wish that the criminal be caught. All this, and something that, to me, is indiscernible, gave birth to a thought that was most revolting. I thought, at least she knew more than she wished to tell. A Quick Trip to Swansea According to the Fall River Herald that day, the following story ran under the subtext. Went to Swansea. At 12.45 o'clock, Marshal Hillier and Officers Doherty and Connors procured a carriage and drove over to the farm, hoping that the suspected man would return there in order to prove an alibi. The officers will arrive at the place some time before the man, as the distance is some ten miles, though it is hardly probable that he will return there. What makes it rather improbable that the man suspected is a Portuguese laborer is a Portuguese is a Portuguese laborer is the statement of Charles Gifford Swansea. Mr Gifford says that the only Portuguese employed on the upper farm is Mr Johnson, and he is confined to his bed by illness. Another man might be employed by Mr. Borden on the lower farm for a few days, but he does not believe it. An attempt was made to reach Swansea by telephone, but no answer was received. Parentheses, Alfred Johnson was of Swedish descent. Portuguese, as mentioned earlier, was a catch-all phrase, at times, for foreigners. Bridget was asked about people in Andrew's circle, and especially those that had business in his home. She may have mentioned Alfred Johnson as a man "'from the farm who sometimes came to chop wood for them. "'It is possible that she mentioned he was coming that day "'to bring the eggs, not knowing John Morse "'had, and, had negated that visit the day before "'when he traveled to Swansea with a basket "'in which to bring them back. "'Notice, Alfred is confined to bed by illness. "'He and Mr. Eddie are both ill. "'Was it from the poisoned milk?' And to catch everybody up really quick on that, Lizzie, in an attempt to poison her her parents, had uh, poisoned some milk at that uh, that was going to that farm, but they didn't go. They stayed in Fall River. So the de- So the farm hands are the ones that got to hold that milk. And so did Bridget, because Bridget drank a little bit of it too. Officer Harrington left Lizzie Borden and Alice Russell, a confused man. He had never seen a woman so cool and detached as Miss Borden appeared to be. Her father was lying brutally murdered in the room below hers, and her stepmom was also deceased only a few feet from where the lady stood coldly detailing her movements in the morning. He was still brooding over it when he came downstairs and entered the kitchen. There he saw Doctors Brown and Dolan, Assistant Marshal Fleet and Bridget. Just as I went to pass by Dr. Bowen, Officer Harrington testified in the spirit Court trial. Between him and the stove, I saw some scraps of no paper in his hand. I asked him what they were. He was standing a little west of the door that led into the rear hall in the entryway, or entryway. I asked him what they were, and he said, Oh, I guess it's nothing. So he started to arrange them so as to determine what was on them, or to learn their contents. They were very small, and it was rather difficult, but on one piece on the upper left-hand corner was the word Emma and that was written in lead pencil, as well as the other pieces I saw. I asked him again what they had contained, and he said, Oh, I think it's nothing. It is something, I think, about my daughter going through somewhere. He then turned slightly to his left and took the lid from the stove and threw the papers in, or the pieces in. As he threw the papers in, I noticed the firebox. The fire was very near extinguished. On the south end, there was a small fire, which, I judged, was a coal fire. The embers were about dying. It was about as large as the palm of my hand. There had been some paper burned in there before, which was rolled up and still held by a cylindrical form. It was 12 inches long, I should say, and 2 inches in diameter. Lizzie made sure during her inquest testimony that they knew she had a Providence journal in the kitchen that morning, even though she admitted to not reading it. The fact that she was never asked about the burned paper in the stove was just one of many lucky breaks she was afforded that day. Just about the time Officer Harrington noticed the burned roll of paper in the kitchen stove, Dr. Dolan came in and asked him over to the table. He had placed two cans of milk there, along with three hatchets, and told Harrington to watch over them. Phil and I want want you to take care of this milk. The family has been sick, and I don't want you to leave it until I relieve you. Assistant Marshal Fleet then instructed Officer Harrington to go and check Bay Street. He also sent officers to and Garvey at that time to cover Stafford Road in search of suspicious people who may have committed the murders. Officer Harrington told Fleet, Dr. Dolan had just told him to watch over the cans of milk. Yes, I heard him when he spoke to you, Fleet said. I will take care of the milk, and you go down the lower road. Officer Harrington departed. Hatchets in the Cellar Shortly before Assistant Marshal Fleet arrived in the kitchen to instruct the officers to cover the major roads out of the town, he had been down cellar to see what his officers had found there. Officer Molly showed him four weapons lying on the brick floor of the washroom, only a few feet from the cellar door that led outside. Molly pointed out the spots on the larger hatchet, the one with the claw head at its back. There was a round spot on the blade that might be blood, or possibly rust. There was also a suspicious-looking spot on the handle. To fleet, it appeared as if the hatchet had been recently washed and wiped. He testified the blade was a bluish tint, as if wet. He decided to separate the hatchet from the other tools lying on the floor. He stepped to his left on in, into, let me see this, into the keep cellar, where barrels of vinegar, shingles, and boxes sat. He placed the claw-head hatchet behind the barrels. Assistant Marshal Fleet was asked at the Superior Court trial if he discovered anything else there in the shape of an instrument while you were down there at that time. Fleet's answer was, not at that time. Fleet went upstairs where he met with Marshal Hilliard. Hilliard had just arrived in the yard. The two men discussed the situation. Officers were dispatched to areas around Fall River. Officer Medley was instructed to catch the 1229 train to Providence, which was departing within a few minutes, and he hurried away. Bridget Sullivan remained in the kitchen throughout the day, watching as the parade of people passed through her domain. The noon meal had never been prepared, and her afternoon off was a mute point. She was questioned about the morning's events, her own movements, and asked to guide officers about the premises, unlocking the myriad keyholes as they went. How much of Lizzie's conversation with the police and friends she overheard is unclear. Lizzie told Bridget she was in the backyard when the murders occurred. The maid, must have, the maid must have overheard her at least once that morning mentioned she was in the barn when Mr. Borden was killed. The majority of the questions were asked of Lizzie in the privacy of her bedroom, a place from which Bridget was absent. But the police were comparing notes downstairs. Had Bridget overheard them? Was she already forming the impression of Lizzie's changing stories? Mrs. Marianne Holmes arrived at the Borden home to find Lizzie in a state of nerves. She lay on her lounge, an arm flung across her forehead, and let the calm facade she had shown to the police slip away. Her head was throbbing, and the, you, 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 and the sound of men's voices and footsteps outside of her bedroom door were taking a toll on her. Lizzie Borden was becoming frantic. Something was wrong. She imagined the police would come, see the bodies, look into the closets, downstairs for a possible murder search the grounds the neighborhood, the neighboring yards for clues, or an abandoned bully weapon, have Windward remove the bodies and leave her in peace. But that wasn't happening. They were coming to her door, asking her more and more questions, trying to trip her up. The bodies were still here. She needed all to go away, all to go away. She needed Emma, she needed Dr. Bowen. Mrs. Holmes hurried across cross the street to Dr. Bowen's home who had been there for only a few minutes, possibly to eat something and check on patients' calls. At Mrs. Holmes' urging, he returned with a dose of bromocaffeine for Lizzie. It was a mild sedative, comparable to today's aspirin, and was to help with the headache and the nervous condition. Lizzie lay in the heat of her room, her friends and family physician comforting her. She wanted desperately for the day to end and to rid herself of wearing two dresses. The layers of fabric, along with a corset and petticoat, weighed her down like anchors. Perhaps it was almost over. Just then a knock came at her door. It was shortly before 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Dr. Bowen walked to Lizzie's door and opened it, about 6 or 8 inches. The peer-out had three policemen standing there, Assistant Marshal Fleet, along with Officers Minahan and Wilson. What do you want? Dr. Bowen asked bluntly. We're here as officers to search the room and the building, Fleet informed him. Just a moment, the doctor said, and shut the door in the man's face. A few seconds passed, and he opened the door again. Miss Borden wants to know if it's absolutely necessary for you to search the room, Dr. Bowen said. Yes, Fleet said flatly. Murders have been committed. As officers, we wouldn't be doing our duty if we didn't search and, and we would like to come in. Just a moment. The doctor once again shuts the door in the face of the assistant marshal, who was becoming more and more agitated. Finally, the door opened, and the doctor stood back to admit the three officers. Lizzie lay on the lounge, visibly upset at the intrusion. "'I hope you will get through this quickly,' she said thickly. "'All this is making me sick. I'm very tired.' "'We will finish as quickly as we possibly can,' Officer Flute said in a professional manner. "'It's an unpleasant duty, considering your father and stepmother are dead.' If he hoped the last statement would evoke any kind of emotion in the prostrate woman, he was disappointed. Lizzie bluntly announced, there is no use in searching this room. Nobody can get in here or throw anything in. I always lock my door when I leave my room, even if it is to only go downstairs. Mr. Fleet nodded to the men, and they began to, they began to search the room as quietly as possible. They pulled aside the other red portier in, in the bedroom that hid Lizzie's the wash area. They opened a few bureau doors and did a general inspection of the bed. Officer Fleet addressed Lizzie as the other two men continued their search of the room. You said this morning that you was up in the barn for half an hour, the assistant marshal said. He had heard from the other policeman who interviewed Lizzie about her timeline in the barn. Do you say that now? Lizzie realized her error and said, "I I don't say half an hour. I say 20 minutes to half an hour. Well, we will call it 20 minutes then, please said, making an entry in a notebook. The color came into Lizzie's face. I say from 20 minutes to half an hour, sir, she retorted hotly. Lee's jaw muscle jumped, but he continued on calmly. When and where was the last time you saw your stepmother? I saw her about nine o'clock as I was going downstairs. She was making the bed in the guest room, Lizzie replied. It was a concession she changed during her inquest testimony, where she then stated she first saw Abby dusting in the dining room that morning. Lizzie continued, hoping to get it all out and have the men leave her in peace. Someone brought her a note this morning from a sick friend, and she went out. I did not know she had returned. Fleet walked around Lizzie's bed and pulled aside the red curtain there. He tried to open it and Lizzie spoke up. That door is locked and bolted from the other side. You can't go through there. Fleet noticed it was also hooked on Lizzie's side of the door. The men finished their cursory search of the room. Mr. Fleet walked into the guest room next door and noticed the bloodstains on the pillowcases and dressing case. He saw Abby Borden lying in the pool of blood. He tried the door to the right of the guest room bed and found it locked on Lizzie's side. This was the door he had seen her writing desk, desk pressed against in her bedroom. Fleet left the room and once again knocked on Lizzie's door. Before any, before any protest could be made concerning his intrusion, he asked her bluntly what was in the locked door at the end, at the end of the hallway opposite her room. She answered it was just clothes, just a clothes closet. He informed her he wished to see inside it and that it was locked. Lizzie met him in the hallway with a ring of keys and unlocked the door. She watched as he and the two other officers looked over the dresses, upon the shelf and around the floor where there were some trunks and boxes. They exited as she locked the door. How do I get into Mr. Borden's room? Fleet asked her as she, as she turned to go back to her room. You must get the keys. Maggie will give you the keys. Lizzie turned away, entered her room, and locked the door. Alice Russell, during her trial testimony, stated that she saw Lizzie go to clothes press at the end of the hall twice that day, both times unlocking the door to get into it. When asked if one of those times was with Officer Fleet, Alice replied, no. When Officer Doherty first looked into the closet earlier that morning, he found it open. At some point, Lizzie may have taken the blue calico she had been wearing over the bed over the bed for a cord that morning and hidden it beneath a heavy winter silk dress in the closet at the end of the hall. The officers later admitted there were two dresses they never checked in the clothes press, as they were obviously winter dresses and would not have been worn in August. Lizzie's second trip to the locked closet may have been to check that the dress had not been discovered during the subsequent searches. The handleless Hatchet Assistant Marshal Fleet, Officers Minahan, and Wilson followed Bridget up the back stairs to Abby and Andrew Borden's room. She unlocked her bedroom door from the second floor landing and stepped back to let them enter. They looked about the room and into the adjoining two rooms, one being Abby's dressing room where the safe sat and the other a remodeled pantry from the the, the days the room served as a kitchen for the upper floor tenants. This may have served as Andrew's clothes closet and the couple's toiletry area. Mr. Fleet stepped over the door into into Lizzie's bedroom and inspected the bolt. It was secure. If the enormity of locked doors in the house made a strange impression upon him, it did not make it into his notes. The three men followed Bridget to the attic, where they did a more thorough search of her room, closet, and trunk. Then they searched the small bedroom next to hers, where John Morris would find himself sleeping that night and, following that, inspecting expected the two attic rooms serving as storage closets. Finding nothing suspicious, they headed back down to the kitchen. The sound of Bridget relocking the doors echoing behind them. Mr. Fleet went directly to the cellar where he found Dr. Dolan and Officer molly still standing guard over the hatchet and axes that lay on the floor. At this time, he asked Michael molly where he had found the hatchets. The officer led him to the middle cellar room explaining as they went how Bridget showed him the hatchets that morning. Officer molly Later testified that it was then he and Mr. Fleet who took notice of a third hatchet. As the two men looked into the old starch box where Bridget had found, had first found the hatchets, Molly took out a hatchet head without its handle. It looked suspicious to both men, as it appeared as if someone wanted it to appear unused, matching the other tools in the box that lay beneath a thin layer of fine dust. But the dust on the handleless hatchet head was of a coarser substance, what appeared to be white ash from the coal pile. Further, it was not just covered on one side, like the tools found on the box, but on both sides, as if it had been rolled in ashes. The two men commented on the ragged end of the hatchet head where the rest of the handle was missing. Both stated it looked as if it had been recently broken. The wood there looked bright, a fresh break. Mr. Fleetlitter testified that he put the hatchet head back into that box and left it there. That was, this was a mistake that came back to haunt him. After checking the cellar door and finding the outer door leading to the yard bolted, he went back upstairs. He questioned Bridget at the kitchen. According to Fleet's notes and his witness statements, Bridget gave the following statements at that time. Mr. Borden came in the house about 10.40 a.m., saw him come in the dining room, go to the window and look at some papers which he had in his hands. He then went into the sitting room, sat down in the large chair near the window, and left Lizzie ironing some handkerchiefs in the dining room. I went upstairs at 10.55 to fix my room. After I had been in the room about 10 minutes, Lizzie called me downstairs saying that her father was dead. Someone had killed him. And go. And and go and get Dr. Bowen. I went for the doctor. He was not in. I went for Miss Russell on Borden Street. And I went for Miss Russell on Borden Street. Did you see anyone who you think might have done the killing, Fleet asked her. No, I did not. I was washing the windows outside and did not see anyone but Mr. Morris that morning, and he went away before 9 o'clock. I am very sure that I was not upstairs more than 10 to 15 minutes. I did not hear the door open while I was upstairs, nor did I see anyone from my window. Bridges' statement, nor did I see anyone from my window, will take on new significance when her version of the morning's events are tampered with for her later testimonies. Mr. Fleet left the house and found John Morris hanging out in the backyard. The man did not look happy as Fleet, as Fleet approached him and began his questions as to his movements in the past 24 hours. Last night I stopped here, Morris began, his mind racing. I slept in the room where Mrs. Borden was found dead. I arrived here yesterday afternoon from New Bedford, called upon Mr. Borden, afterward got a carriage from the Kirby stable. And went to Mr. Borden's farm, arriving at the house again at about 8:30 p.m. We sat up, I think, until about 10 o'clock. Went to bed in the room as before stated. Got up about 6 o'clock this morning. Got breakfast about 7 o'clock. Stopped in the house till about 8:40. Leaving Mr. Borden at the door, went to the post office, wrote a letter from there. Went as far as Third Street on Bedford, from Third to Pleasant Street, through Pleasant Street to Number Four Waybossett Street, arriving there about 9:30 a.m. Saw relatives from the West, remained at that house from 9.30 to 11.20 or thereabouts. Left, taking a horse car, and stopped at the corner of, the Pleasant, at the corner of Pleasant and 2nd Streets and got to Mr. Borden's house about or near 12 o'clock. Saw a number of persons around the house, and was told Mr. Borden and Mrs. Borden was killed. That was the first I knew of their deaths. note that here John Morse admits to seeing a number of persons around the house. That statement completely disappears and is, in fact, hotly disputed by him during his court testimonies. He also says he left the Emory's at 1120 and took a horse cart to Pleasant in second, walked up, arriving at Andrews at or near noon. A horse cart trip would have taken 10 minutes and walking another five. Where was, the re- where was he the remaining 20 to 25 minutes? Have you any idea who did this? Fleet asked him. I can't see who could do this. Do not know that. Did not know that he has an enemy in the world. Have you seen or have you heard Bridget or Lizzie say that they had seen anyone who they suspected? No, I have not. John Morris then asked Mr. Fleet if he suspected that the murderer could have been concealed in the house last night. Fleet replied that he did not. He amended it. In, he amended it to say that a murderer might have been in the house, but could not see how he could have been there without some sort of seeing him. Moore said it was very strange that this should be done in the daytime, and right in the heart of the city. It put him in mind of the Nathan murder, which was twenty or twenty-five years ago. In that case, they never found the murderer, Moore stated ominously. Chapter 21 Thursday, August 4th, 1892 At two o'clock in the afternoon, Marshal Rufus B. Hilliard arrived at the Borden property, on Second Street. He could barely reach the house with his buggy due to the mass of humanity crowding the sidewalks and roadway. His men were valiantly trying to control the crowd. He had never seen anything like it in Fall River. After hearing the reports from his officers concerning their interviews with the inmates of the house, inmates of the house, okay? He he turned his attention to the barn yard. Officer Phil Harrington arrived back at the boarding house and was put to work searching the barn. Marshal Hilliard rolled up his sleeves and joined Harrington, along with officers Doherty, Connors, and Riley, as they overhauled the barn's main floor. It was at this time that Harrington made known to his superiors his suspicions concerning Lizzie Borden. I don't like that girl, Harrington blurted out, as they looked through the old carriages and sleigh. What's that? Hilliard asked, out of of breath in the heat. I don't like that girl. Under the circumstances, she does not act in a matter... In a manner to suit me. It is strange to say the least, Harrington said. The men continued their search of the barn's first floor. It contained a number of barrels, a large collection of old window frames, some with glass, some not, and a general assembly of odds odds and ends. Finding nothing, they ascended to the loft, the marshal leading the way. I want you men to give this place a complete going over. Every nook and corner must be looked into, and this hay turned over. The north side of the barn loft was almost completely filled with, with the hay that had been stored there for for the horse no longer residing there. Officer Harrington later testified there was a close there was close to half a ton of hay, an old fireplace. Oh an old fireplace front, a workbench with a basket filled with odd bits of scrap and iron. Lumber and old pigeon coop took up most of the area. As the officers searched through it all, their uniforms drenched in sweat, Mr. Harrington once again spoke up. If any girl can show you or me or anybody, or anybody else that anybody else would what could interest her up here for twenty minutes, I would like to have her do it. The marshal shook his head and said, "It's incredible." Marshal Hilliard then instructed Officer Harrington to go with him to the cellar of the house. Harrington stated he saw Assistant Marshal Fleet, Dr. Dolan, Michael Moley, and Officer Riley there, searching the cellar. He changed his original statement in his witness report to something different weeks later in his preliminary hearing testimony. He now remembers seeing Fleet, Dr. Dutra, and Officer Devine. When we went into the washroom, laying on the floor were two axes and a hatchet. I had seen another hatchet that day, which was not in the collection, Officer Harrington stated. He went in search of the missing hatchet and found it lying on an old chopping block at the west end of the cellar, near the entrance to the coal room, the opposite end of the cellar from where Fleet had hidden the hatchet earlier that morning. It was a large hatchet, with the claw head on one end. Harrington showed its location to Mr. Fleet, who then took the hatchet and returned it to the hiding place behind the vinegar barrels in the in the keep cellar near the washroom. It was never ascertained who moved it to the chopping block. This was between 3 and 4 in the afternoon. Oversection headlines and theories. The crowd outside 92 Second Street watched as the police officers came and went through the two small gates affronting the murder house. Each arrived and depart, each arrival and departure sent off twitters of excitement. The armchair sleuths postulated their theories as as the newspaper men documented the day in minute detail. The New York Herald by telegraph to the Herald, Fall River, Massachusetts. August 4th, 1892. Lizzie is suspected. At this hour, police suspicions rest upon persons who were in the family circle, particularly on John W. Morse, brother-in-law of Mr. Borden, by his first marriage. Also on the daughter, Lizzie. The police say the only motive for murder was gain, else one of the victims would have been spared. The Fall River Herald, August 4th, 1892. 20 minutes rolled the time the murderer had to finish his terrible work, conceal the weapon with which he accomplished his crime, and conceal it in such a way as to leave no trace of blood on the carpet or through the house that would reveal how he escaped, to pass out of the house by the side door within fifteen feet of the barn where the daughter was engaged and, a like distance from the Buffington house on the north side, pass the length of the house and disappear up or down the second street. At 3 o'clock in that humid afternoon, a buzz of excitement swept through the crowd. A local photographer, James E. Walsh, alighted from a carriage carrying a tripod and camera equipment. There were to be photographs of the salacious scenes. The gawkers could barely contain themselves. Although the police and the attending doctors were ridiculed and pressed repeatedly for their mishandling of the case that day, Dr. Dolan's request for a photographer was redemptive and groundbreaking. Crime scene photographs were not the norm. Jack the Ripper victim were shown in photographs only after being removed from the scene of the crime. Documenting crucial evidence while the bodies still remained in the location of their slaying was a directive of historic proportions. There was, however, one fallback in the Bourne case. The bodies had been moved throughout the day, along with furniture and vital evidence. In Abby's case, the bed had been pulled away, stripped, remade, and shoved back in an effort to duplicate its original placement. Her body had already been turned over, lifted up, and replaced. Her arm placement only guessed at. In an act of decency, her clothes were arranged prim- primly along her body. Andrew's body had met a similar fate, although not as, drastic as, not as drastic as his clothes and the Prince Albert coat behind his head were searched. His body had slipped downwards along the horsehair arm of the sofa. The couch itself had been pulled away to look for bloodstains and a possible hiding place for a weapon. His wounds had been studied, and his face tilted to look for marks on the opposite side. But as the afternoon sun shifted through the sitting room and the guest room's windows, James Walsh did his best to capture the gore of that fateful day. Mr. Moody for the prosecution during the Superior Court trial. What time in the day was this taken? Referring to the crime scene photo of Abby Walsh. Probably half past three. Moody. Under whose direction were, were the body, bed, and bureau adjusted to the position seen in the view? Walsh. They were that way when I went to the house. I didn't see anyone move them. The photographs of Abby's body, parentheses, the photographs of Abby's body from behind and with the bed moved away are marked exhibits 15, 16, and 17. Moody. And whose presence were these views taken? Walsh. There were several officers there and Dr. Dolan. I could not say he was present at all of them. He was at some of them. I could not say any officer was present at all, going in and out of the room. Exhibit 18 was entered as a view of Abby Borden's head. And Exhibit 19 was of Andrew Borden's head, taken later that day at half past four during the partial autopsies at the house. Let's see. Okay. Abby Borden was finally carried from the room where she had lain since her murder that morning. Several men labored beneath her weight and the obstacles of the staircase to transport her body to the dining room where she was laid out on an, on an undertaker's board. At 3.30 p.m. she was undressed. Her bloody clothing, stiff with dry blood, laid aside. Several doctors stood over the prostrate form, including Dr. Gunning and Dr. Bernard, along with Dr. Dolan and Mary Coughlin, who was also a physician. Abby's body was sponge-bathed, and, 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 and partial autopsy began. The notes made of Abby that day stated she was a 64-year-old woman, well-nourished, weighing approximately 210-220, with a full head of dark brown hair, getting to gray. The hair was cut by the hatchet blows, as though done with a razor. Dr. Dolan reported that upon opening her stomach and taking her temperature inside, that it was quite warm due to the fat. Abby's stomach was removed and tied off at both ends to protect the contents. This was, this was placed in a jar, sealed with wax, and labeled. It would be sent along with Andrew's and the two cans of milk from, the, from Wednesday and Thursday to Professor Wood in Boston for analysis. Andrew Jackson his body was lifted from the blood-soaked sofa and placed upon a second undertaker's board in the sitting room. He, too, was washed and his stomach removed, tied off, and placed in a sterilized jar, sealed and labeled. It was noted his core temperature was cold, unlike his wife, even though she had died approximately an hour and a half before him. James Walsh photographed both bodies at this time before leaving the house. You can see his camera. I'm sorry. See what I mean? It's just (laughs) that that was a caption. See uh, the captions look look like the text in this situation. Charles Carroll was sent to the Borden home on, Saturday, on the Saturday before the Superior Court trial in June 1893 to take photographs of the house and surrounding property. At that time, Miss Emma was still living in the home. John Morris had gone back to Iowa but returned for the trial. Emma Borden stood at the train platform in New Bedford and held fast to her friend Helen Brown's gloved hand. Although the telegram from Dr. Bowen had simply said her father was sick and she was needed at home, She knew in her heart it was far worse. Letting go of Helen's hand, so warm and reassuring, and stepping into the train bound for home would be the last normal moments of her life. She felt it as strongly as the humid air that pressed upon her. For the the first time in her steady life, she faltered. She would have given her last cent to turn around and return to the safety and warmth of the Brownsville Parlor on the Grand Street. At 3.39 p.m. on August 4, 1892, The new Bedford train bound for Weir Junction in Taunton departed the Pearl Street Railroad Station. The last leg of the trip would end at at the Brownfield Station in Fall River. Emma lifted the red velvet curtain near her head and waved to her friend, who stood on the wooden platform. With a great blast of steam and squealing wheels, the train jerked away, taking her toward the small house on 2nd Street, and God knew what. At 3.40 that afternoon, officers Edson and Mahoney arrived at the boarding house. They found Abby and Andrew undergoing partial autopsies. The officers were told the distraught daughter was closeted in her upstairs bedroom and that several weapons capable of inflicting the fatal wounds had been found in the cellar. The information was also imparted that the crime scene was suspect. No murderer had been found and there was no trail of blood leading away from either victim. It didn't take long to realize the tide of suspicion was flowing towards the occupant of the locked room at the top of the front stairs. Charles Sawyer remained on guard at the side door. His stomach rumbled, reminding him he had missed the noon meal, and the supper hour was arriving with the waning afternoon. The crowd surging around the house had not abated. The police ringing the perimeter had their hands full, keeping the morbid from trying to get into the yard to peer through the first four windows. The sitting room and dining room shutters were open wide till it in the natural light needed for the autopsies and photographs. The windows, with their screens in place, were raised to ventilate the rooms. Luckily, the windows were too high to peer into, especially the ones on the north where the drive dipped toward the barn. The shouting crowd outside was, constant ba- was a constant background of noise as the police and doctors tried to unravel a mystery that would still capture the world's imagination over a hundred years in the future. As the doctors worked over the disemboweled bodies of Abby and Andrew Morton, Charles Sawyer found himself in a suddenly quiet entryway. The kitchen was empty for the first time that day. He turned from the screen door and eyed the hatchets lying on the kitchen table. His curiosity got the better of him. He crossed quickly to the kitchen table standing center of the room and picked up the big hatchet with the strange claw in I think the police officers were downstairs searching, and some of them brought up, I think, two axes that I know of in this hatchet. And I do not know about what there was another one, but I am not certain. There was one or two. Charles Sawyer testified during the preliminary hearing. Mr. Jennings, for the defense, do you recollect whether one of the hatchets they brought up had a claw on it or not? Sawyer, the one I saw here yesterday in court, looked very much like it. Jen- Jennings. Do you know who brought it up? Sawyer, I do not know. The first I saw of it, his honor, the mayor was looking at it. Mayor Coughlin. He stood at the back entry door leading into the kitchen. He stood there. I do not know whether he laid it on the kitchen table or not, but that that's where I found it. It was about the time they were making the autopsy, I suppose. Jennings. How long should, how, how long should you think the hatchet remained on the kitchen table? Sawyer. I could not say that. I do not know how long it had been there when I picked it up. I saw it there was some cans of milk sitting on the table. I looked it over pretty thoroughly, and I rubbed my finger on the side of it. Jennings, you was the man that did the scraping on the hatchet? Sawyer, I do not know as I scraped it any. I rubbed it and got a dried yellow rust off. I didn't see any blood or hair on it. I don't know when it was taken away. All right, guys, that's it. That's it till Sunday so uh that's our hour we turn this off and I hope you enjoyed it hope you relaxed kick back a little bit to listen tomorrow we're going to be back at 6:30 with Reed Kirby and he's going to be talking about a military program where they where officials were testing hallucin- hallucinatory drugs on our military guys in in a, you know, in, in an effort to use them on the enemy and figure out, you know, how to manipulate people with them. So he's going to be with us tomorrow at 6.30. So be sure to be back for that. Um If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with, with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. Um, Hang on a second. Let me get this out. There we go. <laughs> I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. I really appreciate it. It was a different kind of show tonight, you know, to do this on a Wednesday. It was kind of cool. But, uh, yeah, if you like the show, please share it. If you're watching from Facebook, please follow. Uh, please like the show as well. If you're watching from Twitch, please follow. Uh, again, if you're watching from YouTube, please be sure to subscribe. There's uh, more than 250 videos over there with different topics. And be sure, you know, if, if you're if you're driving along one day and you need to listen to something, we are all over the place. We're on Apple. We are on Spotify. We are on iHeartRadio. You can look us up, and uh, there we are. And not only is this show, this particular version of the show, on Apple, our blog talk version is also on Apple. So it goes way back for us. It goes way back. But if you want to check us out, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Uh, right now it's under maintenance, so it's going to be at least another, another couple days before the maintenance is done. Or check us out, the paranormal team, at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.org. I want to thank you guys, and uh, if you can find it in your heart, I've got that ticker running along the bottom. That's because all this comes out of my pocket. We're not—we uh, don't take any money to investigate or anything like that. So, I, you know, like I said, uh, all the expenses come from me. Meaning the internet, uh, the mics, computers, everything. If you could help me out a little bit to help keep this show on the air, it is the first part of the month, and I need to get some bills paid. That would be great. PayPal.me at California Haunts. Or you can go to Venmo and just type in California Haunts and we're there. Anyway, I want to thank everybody for coming tonight and I will see you tomorrow at 6:30 p.m. I'm sorry, 6:25 p.m. Pacific, right? Usual time, right? Okay. All right, I'll see you guys. Have a good night.